Thank you, Harvard, whatever that means, for having me back here. Thank you, Tarun, for being here. Uh, thank you all. Thank you, Diana Eck. These are all people who, you know, I would line up to listen to when I was an undergraduate. Thank you to my ustad, Ali Asani, um, who encouraged me uh, when I was, I, I was going to say impressionable, but I should say, I should be honest and say when I was under pressure to do a double major in computer science and economics or econometrics or whatever. I was just saying on the flight here when I was coming to Harvard as a, as a freshman, um, an Indian lady was sitting next to me on the plate and she said, you're going to Harvard, beta? Zimmadar, a lot of responsibility on your shoulders. You better enrich all of us when you come back, okay? <laughs> Don't waste your time there. You must do something very useful, okay? Okay, because many other people could have gone instead of you, okay? <laughs> and so I was under a lot of pressure. <laughs> and my father would call me and say, beta, what are you studying today? And I was saying, I'm just going to the economics class and I'd be running off to a creative writing course or whatever. Um, so it feels... It's like a validation, however, um, you know, <laughs> uh, colorful and, and eccentric to be back in, in, in this space, this room where I used to be standing right there waiting to hear various people I admired and loved and, and was obsessed uh, by. Um, so very happy to be here and very grateful to all of you for being here today. Thank you. Thank you very, very much. I'm, I'm honored and moved beyond. I can't say anymore. Um, in answer to your question, you know, when I arrived here, I came here in September 2002, exactly one year after what we now call 9-11. Um, and in Pakistan, of course, one experienced 9-11 as one experienced so many atrocities around the world. Oh, another one this year, you know. Whereas in America, it was a really uh, transformative, um, polarizing very, you know, uh, in some ways, watershed sort of moment, not just for Americans, but for immigrants, for travelers, for people who were coming from other places. There was a lot of, and this was before YouTube, before Facebook, which, as I again mentioned, was created in my dorm uh, by my roommate and his friend Mark. Um, again, my father said, Beta, you really didn't do what you should have done at Harvard. Um <laughs> Um, so, uh, everywhere I went, Annenberg Hall, I would go around with my little tray, you know, so excited that I could drink as much soda as possible without having to pay for it. And I would go around from, you know, place to place and say, hi, I'm Ali, I'm from Lahore, and where are you from? And the other person would say, oh, I'm from Pennsylvania, or I'm from Michigan, or I'm from here, you know, and then... Beyond Lahore, it would be Pakistan. The word Pakistan, the other person would, I could see it, you know, they wouldn't express it, uh, but but there would be this kind of like, oh wow, kind of like moment, you know, ooh la la, Pakistan. <laughs> um, and there was, I felt this all the time, this kind of pressure to explain what it meant to come from Pakistan. What was Pakistan? Where was Pakistan, first of all? You know, um, initially I felt it was a thing that happened uh, you know, when I encountered people who were not from the subcontinent, but then also people who were from the subcontinent, you know, and from what we used to call the Muslim world. I remember going to my first Thanksgiving um, here. It was snowing and, you know, um, I was feeling very melancholy and homesick and whatever and just sort of like annoyed at all the snow. And I went to the Islamic Society's iftar um, meal and I thought, you know, wow, we're going to have community and a feeling of home, etc. And I went in there and, you know, the... Um, the kids there said, oh, you know, this is segregated. The space was segregated. There were girls on one side. And 
I looked and saw that actually me and a few of the other students who actually came from Muslim countries, from Bangladesh, from Egypt, etc., were dressed in what looked like Western clothes, whereas the kids who had grown up in Jersey and Oklahoma and all these other places were dressed in what they thought was Islamic gear. Or whatever. And there was this awkwardness of like, you know, so you guys aren't fasting? And it was like, we kind of are. And then it was like, well, why is this girl smoking out there? My parents told me that nobody, sm- girls don't smoke cigarettes in Pakistan. And then this other girl who was from Saudi Arabia was like, sister, she did not tell you the truth, you know. <laughs> um, so there was a lot of this kind of, this kind of wanting to have a narrative that worked and not having recourse to a narrative. And then being in search of that narrative. I was kind of driven mad by this quest for a narrative. A lot of my peers, I should point out, who also felt that you know, contributing to the narrative was important and took part in things like Gungru, in the you know, Palestine Solidarity Committee, what used to be called then, uh, in you know, activities, interfaith harmony, etc. There was a lot of that going on. But I wanted it to be more than just a vocation, partly because I'm privileged. My, my parents are sort of prominent media people in Pakistan, you know, and I took it in my stride, this idea that like discourse can be a way of life, you know, this idea. But also there was a personal reason, which was that my father um, is uh, sort of infamous in Pakistan. Um, he, is, he has been accused of being a secularist his whole life, right? And so being a secularist in Pakistan is tricky, business, right? It's like if you're a secularist, it means you're anti-state, it means you're anti-religion, you're working for some lobby, you're probably being funded by the Indian Intelligence Agency and also by the CIA and of course by the Israelis as well, right? And yet my mother's family uh, is descended from a very prominent uh, Sufi called Sheikh Daud Bandagi who lived in Punjab in the 16th century. And, um, you know, his shrine still exists in my maternal grandfather's ancestral village. And Hundreds of thousands of people go there to pay sort of pilgrimage and, and pay homage to him. And so I grew up with these two, you know, there was, there was this proud ownership of, of what would qualify as Muslim heritage and this idea that like there is a Muslim heritage here that is in me and that is, I am of and from. And then there was also this idea that because one came from a dissenting, a prominent dissenting sort of uh, family, you know, that was uh, not in agreement with the narrative promoted by, you know, the state uh, and by the deep state in particular, that one was trespassing or not loyal, etc. So I had this conflict within me. And I think when I got here, that conflict became pronounced in some way. I felt an urge to kind of participate in this conversation. Um, And Lo and behold, I enrolled in government courses and in, you know, political science and sociology and, you know, what did the Cold War do to the Muslim world and, you know, um, why did the abolition of the, of the caliphate um, and the Khilafat movement, etc., how did that, you know, screw up uh, the Muslim world? I mean, there's all of this, like, you know, like theory and, and history, etc. And then, of course, because I had a love of literature, I would go to literary, you know, creative writing workshops, the hist of late comparative literature, those courses where they were reading Derrida and Foucault, etc. And one picked up all this jargon very quickly coming straight from Hitchison College Lahore, where it was, what are the 14 points of Qaeda-e-Azam to, like, you know, like, what does it mean for a juridical structure to be imposed upon a text or whatever? And then, you know, like, just like sort of charging through it and just being like, I can deal with this, you know, and smoking away and like being like, yes, yes, keep it coming. Um, and kind of making sense of everything retrospectively, like one year too late always, and just looking back and being like, oh, that's what that meant. But I think it was in your course, um, Understanding Islam and Contemporary Muslim Societies, in my uh, spring semester, I think, freshman year, was it, my, was it the fall semester, 
my freshman year, I enrolled in your course. And that, I think, was the game changer for me because I encountered what I now think of as an aesthetic approach to Muslim culture or an aesthetic entry into Muslim culture or an entry into Muslim culture and Muslim thought and Muslimness via the arts. So via music, via poetry, via calligraphy, via architecture, via things that don't immediately seem political because they're not political with a capital P and they don't polarize people right away because now they do polarize people, but they don't polarize people in a classroom perhaps in the same way as a, a sort of outwardly religious quote-unquote discourse, right? If you begin with, well, what is Shia and what is Sunni? You're likely to, or what is Muslim and what is Hindu or, you know, what is the, etc. You're likely to have a more heated, more polarized conversation than, you know, let us look at the multiple sort of hybrid sources and and connections between, uh, you know, this uh, Kawali and this bhajan, or, you know, like uh, how the Quran was, as you said, intended in the beginning as an aesthetic experience, you know, that the azan is not just a call to prayer, it's also sound that is being experienced by the heart, and how sound is connected to conviction and via experience creates belief, and how belief is connected to the imagination, etc. So there were all these, I found all these, all these avenues of expression, really. And I found that through these, through this particular combine of poetics and music, the Sufis, including my ancestor, had managed to somehow elude those conflicts, had managed to negotiate the contradictions and the exigencies of, of polarized political discourse, uh, and sort of allow people to experience multiple versions of truth, to experience nuance, to experience complexity, and to receive complexity, and to receive nuance, right? And without avowedly sort of claiming membership in one sectarian group or the other, actually participating in, in these very fluid, interesting, accommodating, capacious, you know, uh, realities. So, I suddenly realized, oh, all this sort of kawali that I've been singing my whole life in the shower, you know, all this Bulisha and this Shah Hussain and this Faiz and this Iqbal and this Parveen Shakir, etc., it counts, you know, it counts. Like, I thought that was culture, you know, and then there was religion and then there was politics and there were all these separate boxes, right? And politics and religion were like a business class and then there was like, you know, like the... The, the, I don't know, seafaring, which is like, you know, culture, because who cares about culture, right? I mean, culture is for the masses or culture is for entity. And this is an attitude that one encounters in, in Pakistan all the time, this idea that, you know, oh, culture is in the realm of hobby or culture is in the realm of, or the arts are nice because they will make you agreeable and palatable and, and we can all get happy and sad together on, on weekends, but through music, but, um, you know, uh, you got to, uh, you know, do something else. And of course, a lot of that stems from the need to succeed, you know. And, and, but now we're finding that actually conventional jobs, etc., are giving way to creative, you know, hybrid ways of, of making a living, of earning a living, which are connected to discourse and to entrepreneurship. Anyway, long way of answering your question. I found myself at the madrasa on the Charles, um, constantly sort of sifting through jargon and finding ways 
seeking ways of articulating the experience of of identity and faith and sort of the sort of culture that I was coming from and that I felt would help me make sense of my world and also help others make sense of my world, which was very important and continues to be very important today. Um, just at the airport four days ago as I was coming in, you know, the immigration officer just decided to sort of pick on me, you know, and I just knew it when he looked at me. I was like, oh, no, here we go again. And, you know, I had copies of my book and translations in German and Dutch, etc. And I had all of one travels with all of this stuff now, of course, printed documents of my like concerts and my YouTube and my bank statement and my tax returns and everything. And he was just like, well, you went to Harvard? Why did you go to Harvard? You're going to be a musician. I was like, oh, my God, no. <laughs> you know, jayen to jayen <laughs> you know, like this feeling, it's like, you know, and he was like, well, did you, yeah, and you, you're a musician and you're an author. Like, what are you? Which one? And I was like, but why do you have, and then I was like, but the Sufis. He was like, I don't have time for this. Go, just pass. <laughs> and I was like, okay. So that's, that's how it started. And then, um, and then I went back to Pakistan. My OPT, optional training visa thing, expired. My parents were very upset. My father said, what a waste. You should have become an investment banker. One year later, the financial crash happened, and all of my friends who had gotten those jobs by working their butts off were also laid off and had to go back. So I said, at least, Abu, look, I mean, everybody's back home. You know? <laughs> I'm back home one year before, so at least I had a choice in the matter. You know. Um, so I went back to Lahore, but with the express um, desire, wish, uh, agenda, really, of accessing this particular craft, you know, and this particular tradition of connecting with it. Um, you had shown me the way, and you had shown how actually from this very transactional way of acquiring education, right, which is, you give money, you enroll in an institution, you know, after all these competitive tests and whatever, you go in there, then you have your semesters, then you have your grades, then you have your GPA, and then you're out of there, and then it's the next rung of the ladder or whatever it is. In a traditional uh, Ustad-Shagird relationship or a master-apprentice or a Guru-Shishya relationship, it doesn't work that way, right? You first of all have to just give up this idea that, like, time is of the essence. It's like there's no time, you know. My two people who've taught me, uh, Ustad Nasiruddin Sami and Farida Khanum, uh, Farida Khanum is now um, in her late 80s, and Ustad Nasiruddin Sami is in his late 70s. So 10 years ago, they were also elderly people, and they were like, you know, what are you talking about? You want to be able to sing in four years or whatever. We started when we were four and five, and we're still learning. So just, you know, sit down, son. And so that's really what it was. That was the attitude. It was this idea of like, you know, and then chai piyo, you know, or batao. What's going on these days? What are the kids saying these days? All these corrupt children who are on TV and who want to like wear dark glasses and succeed. You know, just because you know how to hold an electric guitar, you think you're going to be a singer. You know, and there's a lot of this, you know, way of first breaking me down, which worked, of course. It took me a few years to really accept that I was being broken. Deliberately, I was being sort of undone. All this glib, artful learning, this like sort of slick way of, that I had with words, you know the way I used to write my papers by senior year. Ah, paper, two and a half hours, it'll be done. At least I'll get an A minus, you know. And indeed, I was getting those A minuses because I'd like figured out the art of it, you know, the artifice of it, really, of how to, how to you know, construct an argument, as they used to say. I think they still say construct an argument. If my ustad heard construct an argument, he'd like slap me across the face and say, construct? You think an argument can be constructed? What are you, at a builder at a site? You know, like, forget it. Um, 
So I think when I sat down with these great teachers, um, the first thing they said was, this music that you wish to learn, that you wish to imbibe and get a sense of, it is not written down. We know it because we are it. We grew up in it. Our parents, our ancestors go all the way back to Amir Khosrow, which it turns out is true. My Ustad Nasiruddin Sami, his great, 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 great grandfather, Tanras Khan, was the court musician of the last Mughal emperor, Padr Shah Zafar. His portrait still hangs in the um, Delhi fort. And Tanras Khan was a descendant, direct descendant, of the Kawal Bachas, who are the 12th century um, uh, uh, students of uh, who were the students of Amir Khosrow and Nizamuddin Ali in the 13th century. Uh, there were, uh, you know, Hindus, Muslims, Jains who contributed to this this body of knowledge and then passed it on through those sort of, you know, sina basina as they say, from one, you know, from you from the chest to another chest. You know, that from the knowledge passes as breath from breath to breath. Um, so there was no book I could turn to like I used to in these hallways. I would go and like skim through a book in one night, drinking like eight cups of coffee and be like, okay, got it. I've got my Foucault down. I'm going to go down and like, you know, go to the party in Boylston after this or whatever. It didn't work that way. The sabak, you know, the lesson, the darth of nuskhai ishq, as we were discussing today, is endless and and not discreet. You know, you can't, you can't sort of uh, locate it in... in in a day or in a week or in a month or in a year. You never know when it will come and you never know how long it will take and you never know when you have it. Sometimes it'll happen, you know, when you're sitting with your teacher, you know, you will, your teacher will say, as Farida Ji said to me recently, she said, Gao, you know, ye cheese Gao. And she sort of moved her hand, swung it like an imperial command. And I thought, you know, what is she talking about? I don't know this rag, this particular rag, and I'm not going to be able to do it, you know. And I did it. And I was... She wasn't amazed. I was amazed. And she said, good, next. And I, I was just sort of like, but how did I know this? And she said, yes, yes, no need for theory. Let's just get on with it. And this is one of the main things. It's this disdain for theory. It's this disdain for, for, for verbosity, really, for like the need to codify everything, for the need to name everything, to narrow it down into a controllable, ownable, sellable you know, thing. Um, and this insistence that actually the experience of the raga or the experience of the, the melody or the experience of the ghazal is, trumps the, the description of it. You know? And this, to answer your question in a very long-winded way, this is the conflict that I still live with. Is this, there's a part of my brain that is very liberal arts, I want to say, that immediately wants to describe and kind of, you know, and enjoy the description. I mean, I feel like I'm good at it. You know, like I, this is when I write about music or when I speak about music, people tell me that it's interesting because they're hearing it, you know, described in a way that is, that is unusual. But I'm always aware of the inadequacy of it because I'm always thinking, yeah, but when Faridaji sings it, it's so much better <laughs> than when I'm talking about it, you know. And then when Mustad Sami sings it, it's so much better. Yeah. So I think the, you know, it made me think about this issue about knowledge and how knowledge is conveyed and we talk about discursive knowledge, which of course, you know, you get an institution like Harvard. And then there's this experiential knowledge, which I think you were getting from your Ustad. They were just saying, you just have to experience this and you have to become this. You become a rag, you embody it mm. uh, instead of trying to just learn about it. Um, but this also brings me to this question of the musical world of ragas. Yeah. Um, 
how does one go about learning because obviously you know it's not discursive it's experiential so what is how does one go about learning a rag and what is the epistemology of rags and how would you compare it for example to western conceptions of notes and scales because i think it lives in its own different cosmos so mm-hmm. if you can oh yes well the first thing is you get one of these this is an electronic tanpura it says up here electronic tanpura made in india um much to my ustad's sort of chagrin he says hum kyun nahi banate ye cheeze beta hum kyun nahi why are we making this my son we should be um we have left everything to them <laughs> but they also they are good with it so of course they must have the glory of it do and look at us we who are the heirs to this beta we must you know um this is a beautiful uh distillation in some ways of the actual instrument which is shaped like a sitar um it says digital tanpura here actually tanpura is a distortion it's a corruption of the original word which is tambura same root as the word tambourine um apparently the the original tambura i mean there's still a tambura a persian instrument called the tambour which sounds very much like this and looks very much like this so at some point in the i think in the 15th century um in a place called miraj where these are still made near bombay somebody created the contemporary version of a now tanpura or tambura um and recently these sort of some years ago they started making these electronic versions of it so in order to learn a rag or to sing a rag you first have to get this this is the drone that creates the melodic context the space the canvas on which you you know sing the raga or perform the rag um what is a rag uh, it's a great question i ask myself this question every day um rag literally means voice or sound so that doesn't tell you much about what a raga or the experience of a raga is i would like to say propose that a raga is a melodic being you know some people say a raga is a melody i don't think a raga is a melody a melody is like a tune it's it's discrete it's it's fixed you can make a melody and then you have a melody a melody can be 5 minutes long and that melody is 5 minutes long forever you know um and you can record it but when you say this is i'm singing rag malkons you know somebody's version of rag malkons can be 5 minutes long and quite nice and another version of rag malkons can be 50 minutes long and i've heard versions that are 3 and a half hours long and this is five notes what looked like five notes on a keyboard can be performed endlessly in endlessly interesting novel ways for hours right so it is a being it has to be it has to be kindled every time it has to be awakened every time you sing it um which is a really fancy charming way of saying it's very difficult to um to to rouse a raga um the other thing that i found very interesting was that i was so accustomed to keys i was accustomed to a keyboard and to a harmonium which is now an indispensable instrument in south asian music but as my ustad never fails to say i'm going to say in urdu because it will capture his he says tumhe pata hai tumhe malum hai ki hindustan aur pakistan dono mein 1962 तक हारमोनियम की इजाजत नहीं थी यू नो दैट द हारमोनियम वाज फॉरबिडन एट इन रेडियो पाकिस्तान एंड इन इन इंडियन इंडियन स्टेट रन रेडियो फॉर क्लासिकल म्यूजिक रिसाइटल्स एंड व्हाई वाज इट फॉरबिडन इट वाज फॉरबिडन बिकॉज़ अपेरेंटली हारमोनियम वाज कंसीडर्ड द इंस्ट्रूमेंट ऑफ द कोर्टिजान with this truth to this the harmonium is a european instrument that arrived with christian missionaries in the late 19th century and the first 
community to embrace the harmonium because it was a brisk, expedient um, sound you could carry it around was the community of courtesans, of women singers, um, who took it around. And because it was so charming and so so did the job so well, people started including it. It began with ghazal and, and what they call light classical music, but it went all the way into raga exposition and performance. And today, no classical music recital is complete without a harmonium. Um, so, but the issue with a harmonium, as with all keyed instruments, is that keys are discrete, Right. I have brought this for demonstration. This is a keyboard that I travel with, and this is, again, reflective of the creative contradiction that I live with. Uh, I can't do without this because this is how I break it down, right? When I'm trying to understand the raga, when I'm trying to create a tune, I carry this around with me. This has discrete sounds. Sorry, this has just emerged from my suitcase, so it's kind of wobbly. Yeah, this is fine. Can you hear this in the room? Yeah. So this is when 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 a ustad or a teacher starts to teach you a rag, say you're going to learn the rag Bhim Palasi, right, which is an afternoon raga. Um, again, contested. The word is itself, the name is contested. Some people say it has to do with the character of Bhim, who's mentioned in ancient Hindu epics. Some people say it comes from the, the place Palasi, where the battle of Palasi happened, and it has to do with battle. Uh, some people say it's about meditation. Some people say it's about, you know, we have all these versions which add to the charm and the enigma of the rag. But here's what it sounds like on a keyboard. If you were to do a YouTube course in Rag Bhim Palasi, they would say this is what it is. Right? I'm just going to break it down into Sare Gama, which is the alphabet of the... Mm. Sare gama. That's the scale. The rag is Sagama Paniza Sani So five notes in the ascending and seven notes on the way down, right? So Sagama Paniza Sani And what is the scale? The scale is Sare gama pa. These are the seven notes in this scale, right? That doesn't tell you anything about what the rag actually is. Because when you hear the rag, it goes something like this. This movement. This is called Andolan. It's an ancient Sanskritic word, Andolan, which means in motion, right? Gliding. The note itself is in motion. It's not a fixed note. It's not this, what the keyboard says, which is. It's not that. It's. And that ga exists in the context of In another scale, if I made that same gliding gesture, it would sound out of tune, off, off pitch. So it only exists in the context of that particular emotional situation. To my mind, that, that kind of knowledge was just revolutionary. I, had, I thought, you know, 
if it doesn't exist on paper a it doesn't exist if you can't name it what's the point of it you know see if you can't you know get a computer to do it for you in the you know then then it's not it's false in some way or it's it's inauthentic or whatever because of course we live with these this is how we live our lives right and then more astounding for me was this idea what farida ji taught me she said oh you're learning bhimpalasi how about learning desi todi which is a raga that's in the same scale but actually has a completely different emotional effect so i said how do you mean how can two ragas that use the same notes have completely different if emotional effects and she said like this so she said this is beam nisagama pa ni ni sa ni da pa ma pa ni da pa ma pa ga ma ga re sa nisagare sa re ni ni sa ga ga ma 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 ga ma pa ma pa that's beam and then she said in the same using the same notes on your keyboard is rag desi which goes like this so it goes gare ma pa ma pa gare ma ma pa re ma pa ma pa da da pa ma pa ga re ma ma da pa sa ni ni sa pa da ma ma pa ga ga re ma ta pa ta pa ta ma ma pa ga ga re ma ta pa ta ma pa ta pa da ma pa ga re pa ga re ga sa re ni ni sa right and then even more confoundingly and more beautifully she said oh the 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 sani is not actually what looks like a sa so i know sani on a, this key would look would look like this go sani ni sa and i was doing this right sani ni sa she said you're doing it wrong and i said but what are you doing and she said i'm going i will attempt an imitation she said i'm going sani ni sa so i was like that's the same thing and she said no you're not listening properly it's not the same thing mai chhu ke ja rahi hu usko right she says i'm suggesting the knee i'm not making it explicit so on paper it's there and it's not there you know so how do you how do you coming from from this room and from this you know glorious institution of learning where most things are named and are you know sort of made sense of through schemes and through grids and through those forms of learning how do you and she said karo become it become it and then i said i said i don't need to understand is it a quarter note or is it a th- you know a third of a note and she said beta dard ke sath kaho aa jayega <laughs> say it with feeling feel the pain and it will come you know feel the dard is beautifully untranslatable dard doesn't really mean pain because pain is like a negative thing dard according to baba farid is the greatest gift of life right dard is feeling feeling like the greek pathos is i think what come and in, and from pathos is born empathy and sympathy and pathology and all the rest of it um but this thing right so this idea that you can go from 
so now i've i've just composed a fez ahmed fez tune in this desi todi and i took it to firda ji the other day and she said ha pass hai chalao chalao jari honor ho gaya maine kaha ji honor hone wala hai she said bas theek hai so so i think these these things and then finding out that bheem palasi is claimed by you know some people say it comes from it's associated with the hindu deity other people say it's associated with a sufi muslim sufi saint uh, rag desi todi is attributed uh, by my teacher to a man called nizamuddin madnayak who was a wandering dervish who lived in delhi in the uh, 17th century um similarly you know rag durga which i learn is durga is the hindu goddess consort of shiva warrior goddess and when you hear durga you feel durga how can you not you know and yet in pakistan present day pakistan you say durga and people are like hindu you know and you're just like well <laughs> you know like the rag durga need not be hindu or muslim but alas in present day india too you have this whole conversation going on of what is muslim what is indian um mr what's his name uh swami somebody on twitter yesterday on my timeline i saw saying the taj mahal is a hindu monument we have proof because an american architect has said so It's like what world are we living in? We're living in a world where we need to hear these rags. We need to hear them every day. Yeah. So, um, I think one of the interesting things that you see with these rags and the way you're engaging with them is there a means of uh, engaging with and across difference, uh, and in ways in which that are trying to sort of. break down polarizations mm-hmm. you know you could say um and that's what many people learn from it but another way in which um both you worked and i worked on this and that's actually where we come together is looking at the world of poetry mm-hmm. and of course poetry uh, is a very weak word in english to describe this traditions that we are talking about but i can't think of another english word so when you talk about shairi and so on it's simply translate poetry but this is more that poetry it's uh, um it's what you know once called is called heart mind knowledge and it's a way in which which shapes people's world views shapes people's ethical intellectual more you know moral being uh it's a certain sense it's a form of being mm-hmm. it's a form of being and it's a form of knowing and it's a form of becoming through poetry but but you you lose all that nuance when you use the word english word poetry but in any case the poetry that we're working on is filled with this what i'm going to call positive ambiguity and we've been working on the metaphor of love um so uh i was wondering whether you can talk a little bit about discuss this the deliberate polyvalence of love mm-hmm. as a metaphor mm-hmm. that emerges in the sufi poetry that you sing mm-hmm. all right um where it comes from uh and how it promotes a humanistic appreciation let's say of the cosmos really mm. so well um you know i i i, I as an undergraduate here um as as a as a as the lone um a sort of south asian studies nerd in my my entire 
I want to say generation, but I want to say generation. My my year it felt that way. It felt so lonesome. Uh, you know, I was the only one going into the Sanskrit section and into the you know ancient Tamil poetry from the people. I was just like, what are you doing? You know, we're making Facebook here. You know, um, uh, I keep saying that. It's my father's voice in my head saying, "Beta, you have failed." Um, I I remember um, remember reading in reading Shakuntala and the Ring of Recollection. Um, you know. Uh, ancient Sanskrit play. I remember reading, um, translated by the wonderful A.K. Ramanujan, um, who I worship now, appreciate more with every every year, passing year. Um, when God is a customer, the collection of, of, of courtesan songs, you know. Um, then then these songs, Hymns for the Drowning, which was a book of translated uh, Shiva, uh, poems in praise of Shiva. And then remembering that a lot of this this idiom, you know, this Oh, beloved, where have you been all night? You know, this kind of language. It finds its way into Punjabi folk songs like Chan Kitan Guzari Ayi which I sang, composed and sang recently, uh, into the kind of Kawali that one hears, you know. Mera piya ghar aya, o lalni, you know, my beloved has come home. Throw away the clocks, throw away the, you know, let us be together this night, you know. These very earthy, very um, sort of edgy, um, very, in some ways, uh, non-conformist, I want to say, voices, you know, that simultaneously feel uh, Sufi. That it's interesting. You, if you start, if we were staying today, if you started talking, even if Ab, the great Abda Praveen started giving a lecture about, like, you know, we should not listen to mullahs, for example. She'd probably, people would be like, Aap aisa you know? Whereas if she's, when she sings Bullesha, when she sings Masjid Dhade, Mandir Dhade, and she's in the mood, 10,000 people who otherwise would burn down the building are just like, yeah, you know, they're not going with it. I find that, I find that both, I actually find that very heartening because I think there's hope for us yet. Um, I, I find that that, that that knowledge, that poetic knowledge, right, that Irfan, Right, that's transmitted through polyvalence, through the 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 existence of multiple interpretations, gives room to both the poet and the audience to imagine their own version of the truth. Right. So when Amir Khosrow says, or when whoever the actual author of Chap Tilak Sabchinire says, you know, or Aj Rang Hai Rima, you know, for example, Aj Rang Hai, there is color, there is there is I see red, there is blood. It can mean anything, right? It can mean, and it does mean many things to many different people. You see people weeping, you see people dancing, you see people nodding along, you know. And then when you, when you kind of hear the kind of verses that get woven into this stuff, you find that the, the social is being addressed, the historical is being referenced, the very personal, the, the marginal is being included, you know, the voices of women who love forbidden beloveds, you know, written by often by poets like Shah Hussain who live with their male beloved, Hindu male beloveds in Lahore and are buried next to them, right? Written by people like Bulle Shah who, you know, renounce Sayyid upper caste sort of, you know, privilege and say, Kanjari baneya meri izzat na ghat di, menu nachke yaar manavande, you know, I, let me be a whore and dance for my beloved. You know, if, if you sing it, people are like, wah, you know, 
because there's a part of their cultural DNA that receives it and that all the weight of our literary and poetic and musical history gives us a license to say it and to but if you try to say that to somebody in lay terms and be like I want to be a kanjari because I want to like please my I want to please my master they'll be like what are you into you know right so I find this very cool about us you know uh, and i find this actually across across it happens across generations it happens across classes it allows you to you know communicate across religious divide i mean like under any youtube song of you know on coke studio it'll begin what with you know love for pakistan and it'll be like love from india then it'll be like love my indian brothers then it'll be like but i love atif aslam more than arijit singh then it'll be like screw you porkies and then it'll be like you indian and it just descend into this but actually in the realm of the music itself everybody's agreed that this is a good piece of music <laughs> so i find that kind of miraculous and i think it's you know we're laughing because i think we all relate to this right we all experience this we all relate to this we live in this simultaneous kind of you know on the one hand we are one but on the other hand we are all separate you know right now here in this realm of in the bazm in this mehfil you know we are together we are united we are all receiving together and experiencing together and allowing room for our individual interpretations of that experience to coexist and in the realm of discourse or in the realm of theory or in the realm of nations or in the realm of genders or in the realm of i don't know you know shia sunni or whatever we suddenly descend into our militant differences so i find that this ambiguity this ability to speak simultaneously to multiple audiences often audiences that may be hostile to one another this ability within a single line of a ghazal to imply a controversial transgressive secular even heretical uh perspective as well as a faithful perspective as well as a romantic iqbal says you know in that wonderful ghazal of his kabhi ae haqeeqate muntazar nazara libas se majaz mein ke hazar sajde i'm so bad in my south i failed my south asian studies sajde tadap rahe hain meri jabine niyaz mein there we go this kid is going to do well in life um you know and in the towards the end of it he says tera dil to hai sanam aashna tujhe kya milega namaz mein you know we hear it kind of smile knowingly and our nod our heads and be like mm, i feel it is good but what is it what is he saying he's saying let's break it down for a moment let's be like harvard people and break it down unpack it as they like to say here <laughs> you know what is he saying he's saying potentially one interpretation is your heart is full of idolatry what will namaz give you what will prayer give you you know you're 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 an infidel you're never gonna you're not worth the prayer you know the prayer can't teach you anything because your heart is corrupted that's one interpretation the other is tera dil to asanam hai aashna tujhe kya milega namaz mein your heart knows dot 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 whatever there is to know my dear why do you need prayer or what or what or what what good will prayer do you you know in that kind of slightly coy way and the third very sincere earnest meaning is tera dil to hai sanam aashna sanam means idol or you know uh, idol but also means beloved also means sweetheart so actually your heart is love infested you have a sweet you love someone there's someone you love you don't need anything else you know and to be able to receive all three of those forking paths at once to be able to travel on those three forking paths at the same time 
is a glorious experience because you're actually not in any one of them alone at any given time. You're always aware of the light from the other path, right? So the secular is enriched by the sacred and the secular rebounds on the on this on the this. and and the personal and the political feed one another and go back to one another so there's this kind of rubaru as we say right there's this simultaneity this flashing simultaneity is my other wonderful teacher james wood from the english department who's not here today taught me in a in an also mystical course on the appreciation of english literature so actually this exists everywhere in all traditions we have these potentialities um i just like to think that we should we should be able to marshal them in the service of our of our collective humanity not just for quote unquote enjoyment or hobby or like you know uh, fun times on the weekend all right okay so um let's come to your your uh, present day career and of course you've been on featured on Cope Studio and um i wonder what do renditions of the sufiana kalam the sufi verse on coke studio mean uh, aside from the commercial interest but what does it mean for from your perspective for pakistanis and non pakistanis and is there an appropriation involved here the corporate world incorporating or appropriating a, a centuries old tradition of let's say heart mind knowledge mm-hmm. um and how does this sort of trendy remixing of sufi ideas interact with nationalistic narratives mm. that are often promoted by both the indian state and the pakistani state so right well uh i think you know as you saw in this clip here um there are elements of of this kind of coke studio music which is very popular now um you know it it the views often run into the hundreds of millions for these songs um and and according to um the uh, data analysts at coke studio you know they're being watched all over the world so it's not just pakistanis or even indians this, this is being watched in lithuania this is being watched in africa this is being watched in china this is being watched everywhere often by people who don't even speak the language um or know the music itself so clearly there's something there's an appetite out there for this stuff um and you know i think that there's a there's a context there's a social context in which something like oak studio is happening from the time that the that pakistan was created in 1947 and actually long before that there had been patronage for for the classical arts in what is today pakistan right in the punjab and sindh in particular um landed gentry the shrines dargahs um you know maharajas um even invading armies would often patronize local sort of minstrels musicians mendicants uh people who would via sound transmit ideas uh slogans you know the word for uh it's interesting the word that is still used in lahore for a traditional musician who comes from a family of musicians is dhadi in punjabi they say oh dhadi anu bula do dhadi 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 is linked to the word dhadna to 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 yell to proclaim and when you i was looking at the ayne akbari the other day uh from the 16th century in which the caste you know there's everybody's categorized by caste profession lineage etc the caste of mia tansen who was the court musician of akbar is written as dhadi right so at least 
back to the 16th century, we have use of this word. So we see that it comes from proclamation, right? So there's always been patronage for music in the subcontinent. Um, but in the last 30, 35 years, I think in particular after the um, takeover of, of our sort of uh, one and only military ruler, General Ziaul Haq, who shall, who's peerless in every way, um, you know, the, that patronage began to dry up. Uh, it was first deliberately shifted away from uh, folk music and away from uh, classical music because classical music was deemed to be Indian, right? And so this idea that classical music is Indian and we have to, in order to be Pakistani, be not Indian. So let's not patronize rags. You could no longer say things like uh, rag durga sunye, you know. As Farida ji said to me, she said, I used to sing this beautiful tumri, jamna ke teer, you know, and she said, I went to sing it one day. They said, bibi, jamna udar chala gaya hai. Now you can't sing it. You know, the river Jamna has gone over to that side. You can't say it anymore on TV. And this other um, Ustad, they said to him, you can't say Rag Durga anymore because Durga is a Hindu goddess and we are in Pakistan. He said, should we rename her Ghulam Fatma then? You know, and then another great Ustad, Barkat Ali Khan, this, this is a very subtle and beautiful joke. Um, you know, he was singing a tumri about in Radha Krishna when General Ayub Khan was ruling Pakistan and Ayub Khan was sitting in the audience and Ustad Barkat Ali Khan was one of the great, great maestros of, you know, classical singing, was singing this tumri in which he was singing from Radha's perspective to Krishna and saying, Oh Sham, you know, don't tease me, don't taunt me, Oh Sham, which is the, you know, the classical Indic sort of uh, Krishna Bhakti way of, of expressing ardor and, and, and the, as Faridaji says, Cher Char, you know, the tussle, the romance. And, and this messenger kept coming to him and saying, Khasab, koi um, Islamic cheez gaadne. Khasab, koi Islamic cheez gaadne. And then he kept going back to his tumri and singing it. And at one point he threw away the harmonium and said, Kya gaya? Mamad Ali Jinnah meri bhaiya na maror. Right? Which I thought is great. Which is, Oh, Muhammad Ali Jinnah, don't twist my arm. <laughs> you, know, you know? So this, this, kind, of, this kind of patronage has, has in the last sort of 30 years, and also it's not just patronage, right? It's also modernity. It's also kids wanting to wear jeans and sunglasses and sing pop and rock, which is, you know, the, the, the fruits of globalization. So this has happened simultaneously, the Wahhabization of Pakistani culture and the Americanization of Pakistani culture. And perhaps it's no coincidence that the two things go hand in hand, because we know Ronald Reagan was very fond of General Ziaul Haq. Um, so... So I think what Coke Studio, which began in 2007, which is the year that the Red Mosque uprising happened in Islamabad when a bunch of armed um, you know, students from this radical seminary decided to take over Islamabad. And then there was a massacre in the Red Mosque and really the, the sort of the, the violent conflict between, between quote-unquote moderate you know, Islam and quote-unquote radical Islam erupted onto the streets and we literally began to see suicide bombings all over the country. And I remember I had just moved back and I was learning this stuff and we would be learning it, I'd be in the middle of it and I'd hear something and I'd say, oh, I feel like a, you know, transformer has gone off and we'd switch on the TV and it would be the marketplace behind the neighborhood. Somebody exploded a bomb and 40 people killed um, and people I knew, you know, were assassinated, were abducted, were um, tortured, were... Um, had to flee the country because, you know, they were saying things on TV that the, you know, that, that the religious groups didn't like or that the, you know, particular uh, political narrative of that time that was being negotiated by the state with the clergy was not appreciating or whatever, including my father. We spent about two and a half years living away in, the, in about 20, 2011 
uh, we couldn't live in Lahore in our home because the um, anti-Shia sectarian group had, had sent a notice with a beheaded journalist to the house, and then, you know, it was like, they're going to come for you, so you better ship out. And so with my little this thing, I was like living in people's basements in other countries and kind of living off the advance from my, from my first book and pr- trying to practice this. But this became a very emotional process for me. I think I became more attached to this version, you know, and to, th- to this version of who I was and where I was coming from and did not want to lose it. And so something like Coke Studio, to answer your question, in that mahal, in that atmosphere, it really kind of gave people something to hold on to, you know, without explicitly entering the argument about what Pakistan was or what Muslims were. It fed the souls of young Pakistanis especially, you know. When Arif Lohar and my friend Misha Shafi sang, Ve Allah waliyan di jugni ji, you know, O mere data di jugni ji, Vangaan chadhalo kuriyo, mere data de darbar di and a bomb had gone off in data darbar that, that same that same month, I think, or the month after, um, in which, you know, many, many, 60 people were killed. You know, it, it was not just a song. I think it was experienced as, as what, what, like a, what, what the Star Spangled Banner is supposed to do here on the 4th of July. It was really that kind of emotional connection, you know, for something that everybody, and then not just Pakistanis, but people watching Pakistan. Remember there was this, before Syria and all these other, poor countries became the hot topics in America. There was this obsessive hunt for bin Laden and there was this focus on Pakistan, which was, is Pakistan this the, the most dangerous place on earth? Is it this nuclear-armed country that's going to erupt? What are we going to do? Making sense of Pakistan, you know, like all of this pressure to kind of explain Pakistan and save Pakistan, etc. And of course, no government could do it. No religious leader could do it. You know, but the music, I think, it gave us it gave us something to hold on to. So I think Coke Studio enters the picture there, and I think a lot of people would agree that that's where it started. Um, is it appropriation of Sufi culture? You know what? I'm sure. I'm sure that there's appropriation of Sufi culture in Bollywood, in Coke Studio, in Hollywood. I mean, we see it across the board. Um, but as Faridaji likes to say, she says, you know, keep the vehicle moving. You know, like keep chalte purze ko zang nahi lagta. You know, like a, 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 a cog that's in motion is always better than a stationary one. You know, because in the process of being and becoming and practicing and preaching and, and, and sharing, you actually create and preserve. You know, whereas if you again retreat into what is authentic Sufi and what is not authentic Sufi, that discussion leads you ultimately back into the Akal Ka Madrasa, right? Which is where we all then become sort of dogmatic scholars about what is and is not, you know, Sufi, authentic, Muslim, whatever. So we're back to that, that unhappy realm. Uh, my question is about the underlying Sufi movement itself. Uh, while, you know, Rohail Hayat's innovations in Gok Studio and your innovations and we, we are experiencing new sounds and, and you know, bringing alive the, mu- the, the poetry of the past. But somehow, in my case, I've gone through a midlife crisis where I don't find anything new coming out of the Sufi content itself. Mm. And so, uh, after having read Rumi or, or Ghalib and Iqbal's two phases of once, he, mm. he is in the Sufi mode, and towards the end of his life, he starts seeing problems with Sufism, and he criticizes it also. There, there is nothing really happening as far as the... Where is the directionality of Sufism? Or am I missing something? There is something going on which... I think you're, you put your finger on it. May I... I, I think, Alijan, you would agree with me. I think it has to do with what we like to call cultural literacy, right? Or as Faridaji says, beta mahal nahi raha. Right? I used to think, what does she mean when she says mahal? Mahal means environment or the, you know, the, the community. 
we've lost communities we've lost entire communities we've lost the laboratories you know when when i mean iqbal for example you mentioned iqbal iqbal had at his beck and call all of persian literature right which was in the air when he was growing up he had the quran he read all kinds of complex multicultural commentaries on the quran he also knew heidegger he also had been to germany and done a phd you know he was also conversant in shakespeare and in the contemporary english language poets of his time he also knew what the you know what the bhakts from the hindu tradition had do we i mean do we do we have that is it possible in present day india and pakistan to draw on that kind of that kind of river it doesn't exist right i think that is the that is the real tragedy and the crisis is that those modes of education those modes of learning those workshops those guilds you know uh, those they have vanished so we, and you can't get it in a in a in a in a freshman seminar <laughs> you know you can't you can't become a sufi um you know in 2 years these are these are these are living traditions i think that's the thing and that those living traditions have have withered away the keepers of those traditions have died in penury you know um at the universities the level of the level of education at uh, certainly inside india and pakistan i have to say like uh, this is being recorded and i'm going to say it it's it's not adequate it's subpar you know those that the rigor the rigor you had to in order to people say to me all the time they say oh you should be why aren't you writing your own songs as well you know you're composing all fine in raga but why aren't you writing a ghazal and i said you know what it took to write a ghazal it's the same amount of riyaz that it takes to sing a song in a rag there was this division of labor all these years right the people who wrote the poems were apprenticed in the tradition of poetry and they spent decades in the realm of poetry and the singers spent decades in the realm of music and the you know it's like like traditional crafts and of course there was conversation among them and between them which is where all of this great sort of culture that we take in our stride that we take for granted was born but i think we have to restore those communities we have to at least make an attempt to rescue those supple linkages between communities if we are to at all continue the conversation that's my opinion do you want to answer that no i would um he asked me whether i want to answer that and i i just as i was listening to him i think one of the big issues is one of what is the purpose of education and i think there's a notion that's developed and maybe it's coming from western notions of education or so on education is seen as a very technical thing it's to get a job it's to get a career to get money and so on and that uh this idea of education is actually developing the self in a holistic way you know which used to be part of that tradition where even if you were studying music your ustad actually taught you a lot about life and the way to live and it wasn't just about music it was it was teaching you what it means to be human and so on uh and those forms of education have disappeared i think under the impact i think of different models of education that have been introduced very often mimicking western institutions uh but education is about making money about getting a career and things like that the, the idea of education is developing the human person you know it's lost and i think that's where some of these communities that used to nurture humanity mm. uh in this sense 
you know, he's gone. And of course, it's also affecting here. You find this, you know, the humanities and liberal arts and so on are being threatened here too with the same kind of discourse. So I think it's not just an issue with the subcontinent. It's also very much an issue that we're grappling here. Um, I think the other sort of thing, and uh, and then I'll stay quiet, is of course the damaging influence of nationalism where universities have been co-opted to promote nationalistic goals. And so this idea of trying to learn for the sake of learning and so on, they place, they become places where political agendas and uh, nationalist agendas are being played out and the curriculum is dictated by that. And the way you think about history, the way you think about art, is actually controlled by the state. And the state has this hegemony uh, and this is, I think, one of the results. Yeah. So, all right. Mm-hmm. Question. Um, hi. Thank you so much for coming. Um, you, the talk was brilliant, and a lot of what you said really hit home for me. I go to Tufts, a liberal, liberal arts school, um, and I, I really felt what you said by not being able to encapsulate like words and theories into what, you know classical music is so like poetry melodies they don't quite fit the bill and so i was just wondering when when i listen to kavali's or if i listen to coke studio back home and my roommates or people i'm surrounded by ask me what it is i always get really flustered all at once because i can't really describe all of the emotions i feel and articulate it in in that sense and i i remember last year my roommate he was from japan i asked him what he thought it was and he's just like oh I, I just thought there were war cries that you listened to in the shower. Like, I'm not too sure as to, as to what this is. And so my question really to you is, how do you best describe all of these feelings, these thoughts, these emotions, so that they're not boxed into oh, classical music or melodies or, or verses or poetry and, and try to get your point across to someone who isn't familiar with, with this at all? Um, is, is there even a way to do that? I, I understand that might be a hard question, but... Yeah, it's, very, it's been very perplexing for me, and I just wanted to know if there was I, It's a great question. I feel like we should do what Amir Khosrow used to do, which is speak in beautiful riddles, <laughs> right? <laughs> or actually promote the lang- embrace paradox, right? So say something like, like I tried to, I was trying to be clever about the raga. I said, it's a melodic being, you know? <laughs> so cool of me. I could have said it's a melodic structure or a melodic matrix or something smart like that, but no. I'm saying it's a melodic being. I'm using the language, a poetic language already, right? To describe and convey something, not to capture it. I think this is the key, right? We try to capture something. We should try to convey something. So say what you feel. Say this is what I love, you know? Say this is what I come from. Say this is home for me. I think those things speak to people, don't they? Like those kinds of, instead of saying, this is an Indo-Muslim genre of semi-classical music. (laughs) Semi-classical, you know? As my... Uh, you know, <laughs> you hear in Pakistan, even among the Ustars, they're like, oh, that's light classical, this is classical proper. You know, who are you in all of this? <laughs> you know, it's like, just, I think, resort to a language of love. Try to resort to a language of love. Wink and nod and smile and they'll get it. I think one of the defining features of your artistry is its scarcity, which for the modern age, when the pressure is to produce and to always come out with something on every single platform, I think has been very unique. And so I'm wondering how do you hold off on the pressure to continuously um, 
put out something new, to focus on your artistry, especially when you have captured the attention of so many people all over the world? Oh. Um, and how do you see that as um, productive for your... That's a great question. You know, the, the thing that has been impeding me or slowing me down really is just my obsessive quest for knowledge. I'll never get over that part of my life, will I? No, I'll never get over my central crisis. I would much rather sit with Farida Ji and Sami Saab than do a concert. I'm endlessly learning things. And I feel that actually the more I know the less I know. And it's a glorious experience. I'm addicted to it. I'm like a fiend for it. Like I'm, 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 I can't get enough of it. You know, like I just, the day of my flight, I was, I'd gone to see Farida Ji and she was like combing her hair and she was saying, I'm not in the mood, go away. And I was like, but I, can I just for five minutes? And then she was like, what is it that you want? And I was like, and then she said, and I was like, ah, here we go. And then we went off on this journey, you know, and then I rushed to the airport and caught a thing and, and now she's coming to New York, you know, and uh, we're going to have a concert and thingy. I, I think that's the main thing that stops me is that I would much rather be a shagird than be a performer. And apparently that's a good way to go about it, according to the masters. They say, good, always be a student, always be a student, embrace the life of learning, you know, and good things will happen. But I think, uh, you know, I also now have a band of musicians and running a band is like running a political party. You have all these like, these like subtle sort of like pressures from within, which are like, no, we need to have a strategy, we need to win this one. You know, we need to get ahead. Others are charging more. You, we need to be paid more. What are you doing? So I'm constantly fielding this thing of But tune you know, and I'll just be like, um, just So now I'm in that zone where actually, and the pressure is good actually. And Ali Jan, as I call him, also has this pressure on me, which is you know, do it. Do it, be, and, and don't think, don't overthink. So it's actually a balance between being overcritical and surrendering to the experience of just letting go, in, letting go and doing. So we are, to answer your question, I'm going to come out with a lot of songs this year. There's a lot of songs on the way, one after the other. Um, and I hope you like them still. Okay. Right. And do you want to ask? Yes, yes. Hi, thank Hi. you so much for your talk. Thank you. Um, I'm going to take it back to the discussion about Sufism just a little bit. Um, I was just thinking about what you said in terms of, um, you know, how you became a person here at Harvard and then kind of going back and unbecoming that and learning something else and in a completely different way. It sounds like a lot of work. Um, and for others, Sufism is kind of this, like, it's become very consumption-oriented now. You, like, you know, Rumi and all of that has become super superficial almost. So how does the average person do the work that it takes to kind of actually understand um, what can we do to kind of from to stop ourselves from oversimplifying or romanticizing Sufism as something without really knowing it? Great question. I think, again, I'm going to resort to the language of love. As my teacher says, beta harna sikho. Learn to let go, learn to surrender. It takes courage to be a loser, right? To lose. It takes courage to lose an opportunity. It takes courage to do something that will disappoint zamana, right? To go against the grain, to insist on dwelling on the obscure instead of the mainstream, to embrace the margins, right? Um, but I think all good things are born in. There's this beautiful thing my 
my ustad once said to me he said you know separation is everything union is nothing union is death separation is life and i said you know i'm done with this i'm done with this like what do you mean pain is good are you just saying i mean it sounds nice but really do you you know do you of course i didn't say it to him like that i said jaan lekin mujhe lagta hai ki aise nahi he said beta hai haqeeqat hai haqeeqat i said jaan aise mujhe lagta hai ki kuch isme gunjayish honi chahiye ayashi aur he was like nahi nahi aisi baatein nahi karna you know for pleasure and for and for happiness i was like why can't we be happy why can't we actually be like celebrate like happiness also occasionally you know like and he said he said sure in real life we do we long for happiness and we experience it when it comes as a fleeting thing but we should not make a cult of happiness a cult of attainment um and he said here's what i want to show you he said bring a he said bring a glass of water bottle glass of water he said isme kitne katre hain how many drops in this glass and i said oh a thousand he said don't try to be too clever i'm asking you how can you see how many drops i want a number and i said um i i can't count i can't i don't know like you know many infinite he said again you're trying to be smart i want to know 10 or 100 or 1000 or 1 you know answer the question in a very plain way answer it and i said i don't know and he said now watch happen now watch what happens he put his finger into the glass and then he took it out and he said मेरी उंगली में कितने कतरे हैं देर वॉज वन परफेक्ट ड्रॉप दैट इट फॉर्म ऑन इज फिंगर टिप दैट वॉज क्विवरिंग विद इट्स ड्रॉपनेस राइट दैट वॉज लाइक अ ड्रॉप पार एक्सलॉन्स एंड आई सेड आई सेड आई सेड एक एंड आई सेड वाहिद वो है कतरा एंड ई सेड क्योंकि वो जुदा है ना तो जुदाई में वो बन जाता है एंड इट एग्जिस्ट you know and i come back to harvard where i was reading a novel by the great marilyn robinson in james wood's course and she says something like when does a berry break upon your tongue then when you crave it right when you crave something when you yearn for something that's when it exists that's when you exist right and your existence overflows any measurement right so i think surrender lose you know learn to harness equal as my as my teacher says